morning, church. This morning's New Testament reading comes from 2 Timothy, beginning in chapter 3, verse 14, and continuing into chapter 4, verse 5. Hear now the word of God. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message, be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable, Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, Carry out your ministry fully. The word of God for the people of God. So my friends, we have just heard a word from Paul, a word and letter that encourages us to live out our faith in just a little more than word and in hearing and in sight. It asks us to embrace our faith as a lifestyle. And so, this scripture has meant a lot to me for a very long time. It's one that I look forward to seeing pop up in the lectionary. It's a scripture that I see and I feel as if it's my soapbox scripture. It's the scripture that I could stand tall on a soapbox and preach on till the end of my days. This is that scripture that affirms in me that my faith can never be less than what God has intended it to be for me. And unfortunately, I have not always been able to be so brave about how my faith is portrayed in my life. As a child, I often found myself comparing my faith to others. I very much thought that my faith was dependent on how it compared to those around me. That even as a little kid or the youth just now going into youth group, that I had to be a certain way. I struggled at summer camp for years. I was the child who went to the same summer camp from the year I was going into third grade until the year after I graduated high school. And until around my junior year of high school, I struggled every year with worship because those around me would hear a certain song and it would bring tears to their eyes. And they would have such moving worship that they would be brought to tears, that they would respond to altar calls. And I was in the pew, and I very much was engaged in worship. I loved the songs. Music has always been a huge part of my life. But I never found myself in tears. I never found myself moved to the point of being that emotional. I never found myself brave enough to come forward in front of an entire church. And here we are today. (laughs) But I never quite found myself engaging in worship the right way. I thought that I was less than those around me, whether I was a third grader or whether I was a sophomore in high school. I went to camp and struggled because here I was, feeling called to ministry since the age of 12, and I would go 
to worship at summer camp, on mission trip, on a Sunday morning. And I just would simply not feel that I was engaging my faith the right way. I very much believed in a cookie-cutter Christian faith, that my cookie-cutter, if it was a cross, was exactly what I had to be in order to impress God, in order to impress the world around me, and in order to profess my faith. So I'm going to ask you to imagine, if you had to put your faith inside of a shape of a cookie-cutter, what shape would you pick? Just think about it and keep it in the back of your mind. So I came across this scripture prior to my junior year of high school. This was the year that I had, bo- I had moved both houses and towns. I had moved schools. And in turn, I had moved to a new youth group. And when you're a junior in high school, that is a very terrifying move to make. I was not concerned about moving schools. I was not concerned about moving houses. But knowing that I was going to have to find a new youth group was terrifying. And I, of course, held on to this summer camp belief that how I portrayed my faith was going to be the exact, exact way that people perceived me and how people perceived my understanding of God and my relationship with God. And I feared knowing that being one of the older members of this new youth group, that these younger youth would look to me and not understand how someone didn't connect to faith the right way. And when I found this scripture, I had this moment where I urged myself to stop, to stop comparing my faith to others, and to listen to this sound word that calls us all to embrace the faith of our childhood. Because as a child, probably like many of you, I was the kid who said, vacation Bible school is next week. I'm so excited. I get to go to summer camp in three months, and that's a whole long time away, but I'm going to summer camp. And oh my gosh, I'm a sixth grader now, so I'm going on my first mission trip. I thrived in youth group, in children's ministry, in church. I thrived by doing. I was not necessarily the best at worshiping, or so I thought. But I knew that if I had passion, the worship would come eventually, and that maybe one day I would find the will to cry during a song. At one point, I truly thought that if I convinced myself to do some fake tears during summer camp, I would be like up on the level of the people who had full-on tears. So I tried to fake cry one year, and I was like, yep, wiping a tear, oh man. And it just didn't feel normal. It didn't feel like I was connecting to God. So I find this scripture in 2 Timothy, I find my soapbox. I read through the scripture and I just love this part that asks us to know from whom we have learned our faith. And so I step back as a little junior in high school and I say, oh, I have learned a faith. I've learned a faith from two parents who have loved me and pushed me to be the best lover of God I can be, even when that's not like anyone else. I argue that I have the coolest baptism date of everyone because I was baptized on Valentine's Day of 1999. So what a day full of love to celebrate the love of Christ. And I I learned from this. I learned from community. I didn't always learn from tearful worship. I most definitely did not learn from being brave enough to go up in front of the entire church and profess my faith. And I didn't always learn from small group. But I learned from the doing. I learned from people believing me, and I learned from how 
the examples around me presented the sacred word of God through example. I learned that through this God-breathed scripture, that it is so much more than the four walls of a church that define my being with God. And I found that later in life than I would have liked, but also still young enough to breathe out faith in a whole new way. And in the summer that I was 18 years old, I chose to move to Cleveland, Ohio for two months. Thanks to my mom and dad, who very willingly and also a little nervously agreed to let me fly across the country to a place I had no idea where I was going or who I would be meeting. And I was able to work with a beautiful mission through the United Methodist Church. And I spent a whole summer building wheelchair ramps, painting houses, learning how to drive on roads where rush hour starts at 2.30 in the afternoon and is gone by 3.30. It's really nice, except when you're not expecting it. And I spent a summer in a place where people would come up to me prior to me leaving and saying, do you realize you're going to go work in the ghetto? Do you realize how crime-ridden that city is? Do you realize that you're a girl, that you are 18, and you're going to move to this place? Do you know how many drugs float around there? And for months prior to me leaving, I heard the opinions of so many people who feared for me to go. And while there were times that I just wanted to ignore it, I found that the best way to fight this was to fight it through truth. And so I kept up with a blog while I was in Cleveland. And I was amazed that every single week, God showed up in so many ways. God does not believe in the socioeconomic status of a people to determine their worth to God's self. That's not how God works. Each week I was met with shining faces who wanted to know more about our mission. Some of these people had never heard the word of God before, yet every week they were so thankful to have a group of youth, a group of adults, a group of seniors come to Cleveland and serve them. They are a neighborhood that is not defined by what the world sees them as, but how God sees them. And perhaps my favorite example of this was a day that I was taking a group of 6th through 8th graders to work in one of the community gardens in Cleveland. It was extremely overgrown. It was one of those gardens where you were almost afraid to let the youth go into it because you didn't know if there were going to be used needles or weapons or something awful left behind, and you didn't want that fear to, let, to take over. But at the same time, it was there. And so on this day, I have a group of about 12 or 13 youth and a couple of adults. And all of a sudden, this little girl pops up. She's probably yay high, super cute curly hair, and she walks right up to me with this sassy pose, and she looks at me like this. She goes, I want to help you. And I said, absolutely. She goes, actually, hold on, and she leaves. And I was like, okay, well, you know, she's a cute kid. She'll come, you know, she might come back. She might not. And she comes back with all eight of her siblings. Eight. <laughs> so she is six years old. She is beautiful and bright and lovely, and all of her siblings stayed the entire week that we worked in that community garden. And they came every morning. We brought snacks for them. We hung out. We heard their family story. And one day, this little six-year-old girl, she says to me, I really want to know God, but I can't read. So I can't read the Bible. <coughs> and I looked at her and I said, you do not have to be able to read in order to love God. And in that moment, I realized, wow, how many times have people felt that they could not receive the love of God because they don't have the gift of reading? How many, how many people are afraid of opening the Bible, even if they can read? 
And how is it possible that we say these things, that we feel these things, that the Bible has to be our path? This six-year-old girl showed so much Christ in her through her willingness to spend a whole week of her summer in a garden with a bunch of random teenagers and me. I came to find out later that week that her family had moved here from Uganda, all eight of her siblings and her mother. Her father passed away in a mining accident, and so when they came to America, they had absolutely nothing. She was a year old when they came. She doesn't remember it. So as far as she knows, Cleveland has been her home. But I asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up. She was very talkative. And so her siblings were sharing. One wanted to be an astronaut and go to the moon and see if the moon was made of cheese. A very, very strong reason to want to go to the moon, if you ask me. And I looked at this sweet little girl, and I said, what do you want to be? She goes, I want to be a helper. And I was like, yeah, that is Christ right there in a six-year-old who could not read the Bible, who hadn't heard the stories, but was living out every single story simultaneously in her life. And so for years... I had held on to this cookie-cutter passion for Christ, that if I did X, Y, and Z, I would be a good Christian, that if I presented myself in this way or that way, that people could see that my call to ministry was real. I felt that I had to have defining moments, that I needed to be able to spit out in three sentences the exact moment I was called to ministry. But quite honestly, I can't do that. I don't have a defining moment in which God called me to ministry. It was more of a culmination of little 12-year-old me saying, hey, I don't have to stop doing this church thing after I graduate high school. This is more, this is more than youth. This is more than this church. This is a life. And so from 12 years old on, I've just been pondering And of course, I've had my failure moments. I've had these moments where I doubted myself, where I had no self-worth or self-image in my own relationship with Christ because I didn't feel that I was participating in meaningful worship by not being brought to tears. That just because I could not sit in a pew still long enough to pray and not get distracted, that I was a bad Christian. That because I could not quote scripture, and the list goes on and on. But then... This scripture just kept coming back in my life. That for Paul, faithfulness doesn't need to be reduced to having the right set of information. I think this is something we all struggle with. That if we go to Sunday school, if we learn scripture, if we memorize eight chapters out of the book of John, that we've got it. We've got faith down. We have our system. We are Christian. But for me, I find that picking up an identity that's been laid down before us is so much more than that. And of course, scripture is wonderful. Memorizing it is wonderful. Sunday school is part of the reason I am who I am. I come from a church background that supported me so wholeheartedly that until my first year of undergraduate, I did not know that there were people who did not believe women should go into ministry. Because I had had female influence in ministry in my life growing up, and because I've never, I had never experienced anyone of any gender telling me that I shouldn't follow my dreams, that I had two wonderful parents who passionately pushed me even when I said, oh, but I could just be a band director. I could just be a music education major. Because I had pastors who believed in me, I did not realize that was a thing. And how beautiful to be so ignorant to something because Christ is so present in your life. And of course, there have been moments in which I haven't wanted to proclaim the message. Moments where... 
I felt so small that my cookie cutter was here. There have been moments my cookie cutter felt that it was as big as this whole church. And then there was the beautiful moment where my cookie cutter finally fell apart. It has come to my attention that God does not expect us to be perfect. And how beautiful is that? And as a perfectionist and person whose most rotten fruit of the Spirit is patience, it's very peaceful. It's very peace-bringing to know that my perfection is not expected. The only thing that's expected of me is love. And so we go throughout this scripture and we hear this call to be persistent whether time is favorable or unfavorable. I'm, again, I'm not always the most patient person. I got through my undergraduate degree in three years, not because I had the credit hours, but because I would much rather spend 19, 20 hour semesters in school because I was just ready to get to seminary. I was ready to go. And if you had told 12-year-old me that becoming a pastor required degrees, I would have been like, no, you just preach. And then I found out. But I've learned to slow down. I've learned to be persistent. I have learned to convince and rebuke and encourage. And throughout it all, I've found that my ears itch. I have found that this itching ear that Paul describes is so, so real. That sometimes it is the rage of a thousand fire ant bites, and it just pushes me. And so whenever I have taken this step back in life, whenever we as Christians feel that we are not worth anything because our, we weren't always in church as a kid, because I haven't stepped into a church in 20 years, because I have not presented my life in Christ publicly, I'm not worth Christ. I'm not worth saving. And then your ear gets that itch. And you get that pushed forward. And you say, oh, well, maybe I am. And what I love about this scripture is that it's not just a call for you to be pushed forward. It's a call for you to be the pusher. In 2015, when the terrible tornado hit Garland and Rowlett, I, at the time, was a senior in high school. I was on Conference Council on Youth Ministry, which is a wonderful organization that allows the youth of the North Texas Conference of the United Methodist Church to get together, plan the midwinter retreat our youth love to go to every year. We get to go to annual conference and experience what it's like. It's amazing. But I had a wonderful friend who was on CCYM with me who was from this area. And the day after the tornado, on December 27th, they opened their church as a laundromat for people who might have lost their homes, but their clothing was still intact enough that if they washed it, it would be wearable. They also had a small free thrift store that allowed people who had lost everything to come and replenish as they moved on to this next chapter of life. And on this day, a day when it was hectic, with lots of emotion, when Paul calls us to have the utmost patience in teaching, my friend was approached by, again, a child. Funny how God uses children in our lives. And this boy walks up, and he's probably 10 or 11, and he has a piggy bank, and he looks exhausted. He looks beat down. And he walks up to my friend, and he says, Ma'am, um, I lost my house last night, but my piggy bank survived, so if it's okay, I want to give you my coins so that people can do their laundry. And that one hits you. Because in the moments where you just want to help people and get done and go through the motions and just help as much as you can and not really think about the hurt people are going through, this child comes forward with literally all he has left and wants to give it away. 
And if that is not rebuking evil and hurt, I don't know what is. But how beautiful that in these moments where we have this itch, that we see this example. And so I think that this scripture calls us to do more than to stop comparing ourselves to others. I think it calls us to stop comparing ourselves to others and then go forward and say, you know, there are kids out there that long for it to be vacation Bible school. Maybe I can make sure that that kid has a ride or else they won't be able to go. Or maybe you see that one eighth grade youth who gets way too hard for it locking. That was me. Who is a little bit rambunctious, who doesn't quite know their path in life yet. And you say, I want to make sure that they have a mentor. I want to make sure that they are getting where they need to be. I want to plant the seed. Maybe I could do something small like take them lunch at school. Catch them on a Sunday afternoon and make sure that they're going to have a good week. Or it could be as simple as just saying, I'm going to make sure I pray for them this week. If we are going to have the risk of people wandering away to myths, should it not be our job to allow our faith to go beyond this building? Should we not try to pursue a faith that is so bold that we stop comparing ourselves to others, that we risk being embarrassed, that we risk failure, and we endure suffering? We endure that there might be failure, that we might falter, that we might say the completely wrong thing, that we might not interpret scripture quite the right way, and we stop and simply say something pretty bold, which is, who cares? Who cares how right you are if at the end of the day you are leading people to the image they were created in? That if you are leading people to God, even if you, if you plant the seed, even if you aren't there to see what happens to that seed, who cares how embarrassing it is, how hard it is, how easy it would be to say no, when at the end of the day, you can carry out your ministry so fully that your cookie cutter goes away. So I'm going to invite you all right now to hold up the cookie cutter I asked you to imagine earlier. Whatever shape you chose, hold up your cookie cutter. I just want you to throw it. Throw away your fear that you're not good enough for God. Throw away your fear that you have to have the exact right set of information in order to impress Christ. Endure your suffering. Do not hold yourself to the bounds of one simple cookie cutter. Let your cookies be ugly and mashy and uneven and sometimes not all the way baked. Burn them sometimes. Don't be embarrassed to let your faith be compared to a cookie analogy. And know that when that itch happens... That when you see the kid who's kind of quiet but is really engaging with VBS, that when you feel yourself starting to say, I don't know the book of Romans. Maybe I shouldn't sign up for that Sunday school class. That when you are out in public, that your faith is just as bold as it is in here. Know that that itch is not going to go away. But it is only fulfilled when you allow yourselves to climb a summit to stand there and embrace the brightness that comes. And in the same way that when you are in the bottom of a valley and it is dark, that you know that it, who cares? That you can remind yourself on your worst day, who cares? Because who I am in God is worth so much more care than how I am defined as a resident of Cleveland, Ohio, as an 11-year-old who is left with a piggy bank after a tornado, 
as a 12-year-old who is now 21 in her master's degree, living out her dream because of people like all of you who have pushed me to keep going. Imagine what we can do if we give the push, if we satisfy the itch for ourselves and keep going. If we can scratch the itch of the whole world, if we can learn to love so boldly that our cookie cutters are gone and we allow ourselves to be one big mess of Christ, I think we will truly satisfy our itching ears.